As I looked at this message today, I was reminded about getting ready and what happens when you're not ready. And there's a story about a pastor who was going uh, visiting to different people in his congregation. And he went to the home of one family and he knocked on the door and he heard these feet really quick move. And he didn't hear anything after that. And he was frustrated. He kept knocking and ringing the doorbell and no one's coming to the door. So finally, in disgust and frustration, he pulls out his card and he decides to be, he says, he writes on the back of his card, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 which is, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So he leaves his card in the door and he goes back home and the day goes on. Well, the next Sunday at church, the woman that the home he was visiting walks up to him and doesn't say anything. She actually just walks up and hands him a note. And it says, Genesis 3.10, Behold, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid. So she wasn't ready. (laughs) She wasn't ready for that. And we know that we need to be ready. There's certain things that we need to prepare for. We need to get ready for. Getting ready for company coming over. How many of you, when when people are coming over, you invite people over just as a means of cleaning your house? I I host small group because I know that every week my house is going to get clean. It's one of the reasons I like to host small group. And, and when people are coming over, you're putting everything away. You're yelling at everybody, making sure everything's put away. The towels, just throwing the bedroom, all the laundry goes in this one bedroom that's locked with a key on it that no one ever just to go in. And we're, we're getting ready for company. There's other things we prepare for, too. Our graduation day. I mean, just this, in a couple months, we're going to be having people that are graduating from high school or from college or, or graduate school. And people prepare for that. And they get excited about it. And we prepare for those things. Or, or the biggest thing that we prepare for is our wedding day, especially ladies. Ladies has the magazine, have the magazine Bride and Chicago Bride and all these different. You don't ever see Groom magazine. Because no men are walking around with magazines dreamed about what it's like. I mean, guys were not that special. I mean, this girl's been dreaming about this wedding her entire life. They spend thousands of dollars on this, this dress. And as one comedian once said, he goes, you get a tux that someone else just wore four or five times that week. That shows your place in the wedding. So you're not getting prepared. I mean, we, I mean the ladies are getting prepared. It's a big day. The wedding is a big day. Things that we need to be prepared for. And then having children. Yesterday we had the blessing of, of having a, a, a baby shower for the Kakules as they prepare for the arrival of their new little girl. And praying for that blessing. And people are, are getting everything ready so that they have their home that's ready for that wonderful girl. And we have all these things that we prepare for, right? But there's something that we often don't prepare for, and it's the most important event in the history of the universe that's coming. And that's the second coming of Jesus. We need to be prepared for that. We need to get ready. And I, I love that song, People Get Ready. Soon, you know, Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. Home. Uh, that, that really brings a blessing to my heart. That we need to be ready. That's the purpose of this series, is talking about being ready to live the life God wants us to live as we prepare for Him to come back. We need to be ready for His coming. But what does that mean? What does that mean for each one of us? How do we prepare? Does that mean we need to be stocking up supplies in our basements? Is that what it means? Is that to put up, you know, have bars on our windows and for the time of the apocalypse? Is that what it means? No. What does it mean? Does it mean dusting off end times charts and going around talking about it all the time and that's all we're consumed with? No. It means having a healthy understanding of what is going to occur at the end of time and how, is, how, and how that event encourages us to live in the here and now. So, 
Today, I want to settle in and open our hearts and minds to what God has for us in his word. So let's stop and pray and ask God's blessing on our time together, our message time. Father, speak to us. Open our hearts to receive the truth. Lord, we've been talking about the end of time, and you've given us a sneak preview of what's going to occur. Lord, may these words be a blessing and encouragement to our hearts that we might go forward in faith and joy, thankful for all that you've done and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I want to kind of take us back for a moment. We've set the stage for the past few weeks, but just as a means of quick reminder, Thessalonians, it's a new church. These are young believers They have been instructed. They have come to faith in Christ. They have endured persecution. Paul, after he had planted this church with new converts, was forced to flee, leaving them to survive on their own. And now that they they are growing, and and Paul is encouraged to hear a report back that their faith is going on strong, but they're confused about some things. And we can see from this letter the things that they were confused about. And they were told that Jesus is coming back. And for them, that meant immediate. Paul understood that to be immediate. Matter of fact, it's always to be immediate because we never know when it is. But they fully expected for him to come back. And they're confused because some of their, their friends and brothers and sisters in Jesus are dying. And they're like, well, wait a minute, if they're dead, are they going to miss the coming of Jesus? What, what does that mean? And so they're confused. And Paul writes back to them, giving them instruction on what is going to occur. They were confused and discouraged, but a sign of a good leader is knowing when and how to encourage those around him, and that is exactly what Paul was doing. See, Paul seeks to encourage them by giving, giving them and us a wonderful hope. That's the first point I want us to write down. This is our hope. It's a wonderful hope. Paul is saying, I'm going to explain to you what's going to happen at the end of time. This shouldn't be meant to discourage you, but meant to encourage you. And this hope, he's talking about what is going to happen at the end of time. That we we shouldn't be grieved as those who do not have hope. Why? Because there's a resurrection coming. As we have said before, the greatest event in the history of the world is the the two, they're back to back. And that is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And without the resurrection, we have nothing. We cannot emphasize enough the importance of the resurrection. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said it is the hinge upon which Christianity, the door of Christianity, turns. So it's the biggest celebration that there is. And he's saying that there is a resurrection that Jesus had, but he's the first fruit. There's another resurrection coming for all of us. And he wanted to, to encourage them. So Jesus speaks about, the, or Paul is speaking about the resurrection. Now Jesus talked about a resurrection too. And he actually spoke about it when these Sadducees, these religious teachers, were trying to trick him. Because these are teachers that didn't believe in the resurrection. So they had they'd come to Jesus, and we read this in the Gospels, they come to Jesus to trick him, and they come up with this hypothetical situation. Because they, Jews, practice what is known as the Leverite view of marriage. And what that means is this, that if a man died, and leaving a widow behind, and they didn't have children, it was the obligation, because widows in the ancient world uh, were to be, they, they could be marginalized, they were out of society in a way, they had no protection, they had no covering over them. So it was beneficial for a woman to marry. And so what would happen is, is these weren't love marriages like we have in our society today, more like those in India, some more arranged marriages. But what happened in ancient Judaism is it was the obligation of the next relative, such as a brother, to marry that woman and sire children. And that, the, that child then would bear the name of the dead brother. So his name would go on within Israel, which was a big deal. Okay, but that Jesus, or they bring this situation to Jesus, and they say this man married her, and he died with no heir. 
And so his brother married her, and he died with no heir. And it went on and on until there, there were seven of them. And so these Sadducees come to Jesus, and they say, well, now that she, she was married to all of them, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And then Jesus responds in Matthew or Luke chapter 20, verse 34 through 40. He says, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, that's why I brought this out, talk about the resurrection, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all are alive to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. They were trying to trick him, and they realized that Jesus knew a whole lot more than they did. And Jesus is teaching them about the coming resurrection, that there is life beyond the grave, especially for those who believe because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, Jesus died our death, and through his resurrection, we can have a life eternal with him. But this is all predicated upon his coming back, which is why Paul wrote in verse 14 of our passage today, of 1 Thessalonians 4, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, it's only for those who have truly believed and put their faith and trust in Christ. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Here it's a metaphor of those who are dead. There's, he is speaking about a resurrection of the dead, and that will truly occur when he comes back again. See, we will receive glorified bodies. As it stands right now, there are those loved ones in heaven, such as the disembodied souls in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8 through 10 who cry out for vindication when they say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they are told to wait a little while longer. Now, they would, we could see them as disembodied. They not, have not received glorified bodies. They have yet to receive their vindication or their resurrection body, and they will receive that then in the resurrection. And for us who believe, that is an absolutely wonderful hope, knowing that death is not the end. Death is not the end. When you see your loved one that is a believer in Christ that is on that hospice bed and their life is slowly trickling away, know that there will be a reunion. There will be a time where you will see that loved one. If they truly have loved Jesus, you will see them again. So we do not grieve like those who have no hope. We have hope beyond death. Because of what Jesus has done, as Christians, we need not fear death. Just as D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, when he was dying, he was talking about seeing the wonders of heaven. And he drifted into a coma and he came back out, uh, drifted out of consciousness and came back in and he said, what are you still doing here? I've been there. I don't want to be here anymore. I want to step into glory. It's my graduation day. It's my coronation day. It's the greatest hope to be in the very presence of God, to be absent from the bodies, to be present from the Lord, to be present with the Lord. That's an excitement that we should have. It's our wonderful hope that we possess. Now, this hope begins and involves, first of all, in our text, a glorious announcement. A glorious announcement. He tells us that Jesus is coming back. Look at verse 15. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
See, God is making an announcement to us that there will be a resurrection, and what a resurrection it will be. In verse 16 we read, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I mean, it's a glorious announcement. You know, I was in a wedding uh, about 16 years ago for my college roommate. He was uh, marrying a girl who was uh, called a Messianic Jew. And so they had this very unique wedding. I don't know if you've ever been to a Messianic Jewish wedding or even a Jewish wedding. But what occurs is actually the bride comes in first in a Jewish wedding rather than the groom. And the bride would come in and there was a chuppah, the tent. And she would come in and her parents would stand in the middle and she would walk around her parents seven times that showed that her loyalty had been to her parents for the past several years of her life. But then the father of the bride would call to the back of the sanctuary. And my roommate's name was Andrew. And he would say, Andrew, you have done righteously. Come and receive your bride. And then my job in this whole debacle and celebration, I have a shofar, which is a ram's horn. Okay, it's a trumpet, and, and sometimes it's referred to in ancient Judaism. And I was to pull up the ram's horn and make this you know, big announcement of him coming up. And so I get up there, take my breath, and... And the groom finally walks out, and he's laughing hysterically. And he walked down the aisle, and it was great. And, and I mean, he was laughing at it. You know, it wasn't a great announcement that he wanted. Uh, or they, they needed to, and I was just embarrassed. My face was all red, and I just wanted to sl- sl- you know, sleek away. But when he came in, and he, then he walked to the middle of the, the altar, and then she walked around him seven times to show that her, her loyalty is now gone from her family, her parents now, to him. And they were being united in marriage. It was a great picture. See, it's, it's a great announcement that, he's, that he is coming, and, and the bride is waiting for her husband to come down the aisle. And see, that's what it is. It's a picture of us. It's a picture of we are the bride of Jesus Christ. We are his bride. And we hear that trumpet. He's coming. Glorious. He's coming. And his excitement should be overwhelming to each one of us. That he's coming. This is the day that I've been waiting for. It's a day of hope. A day of I'll see everything my heart has longed for. It's a celebration. That's an announcement. And that's what we see here. There's a great announcement. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead of Christ, in Christ will rise first. I mean, the voice of an archangel. Can you imagine what the voice of an archangel is? I mean, you've heard a beautiful note or heard a voice and you get chills all over. You ever had that? You get goosebumps. Feels so good. But hearing an angel's voice, you know, it even talks about in the, in the New Testament that there's the sound of, of Jesus uh, in the book of Revelation, that his voice is like the sound of many waterfalls. It's beautiful. And the voices of heaven, hearing an archangel, I mean, that's, a, that's not a voice you're going to go, who's that? People are going to know, that's different. That's amazing. That's gorgeous. For some, it will be terrifying. But as it will be the most welcoming sound to know that he is descending. It's a great announcement. So it starts off with an announcement. That's where our hope is, is, is seen. We see this announcement involves a glorious announcement. Now we also have an announcement. We also have his appearing. His appearing. Who is this that de- de- descends? Jesus himself. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself, Jesus will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now what does Jesus look like when he comes down? Have you thought of that? 
What's it going to look like? He came the first time as the suffering servant. The one who was born in the stable, born in the manger. The one who took off the robes of heaven and put on the robe of humanity. The, the one who is beyond time, for he created, steps into time. The one who made the heavens and the earth and the stars and the sky and the innumerable planets and solar systems. That God made himself a servant and stepped into our world to experience our troubles, our sufferings, our sicknesses, and take upon himself our sins. That God came the first time humbly, riding on a donkey. But the next time, he comes as the conquering king. Take a look. Revelation chapter 19. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judge, judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's an awesome picture. He's coming as the conquering king. Now see, after we see him, there will also be not only his appearing, but then there is the ascension that occurs, this resurrection. Look at verse 16 again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. You know, some of you have been privileged to go to Israel. When I was in Israel, I, I, I went there... Uh, about 18 years ago, I was traveling there on a, uh, with a choir. We were there 17 days, traveled all throughout Israel. And one of the things that struck me was the Mount of Olives. And it wasn't just this biblical place where you, I mean, you've seen and experienced the olive groves. There are there, there, there was, they are there. But what is amazing to me was is it's, it's become a cemetery. It's become a cemetery all around it. And rather than just headstones, they have full tombstones that actually covers the entire body. And it's just filled. This whole area is filled with tombstones. And what it means, and the reason that there are people buried there, because they know that the dead in Christ will rise first. They know that uh, he'll be seen in Jerusalem specifically. So they wanted to have a front row seat. (laughs) So people are buried there so they can get there before everybody else. (laughs) That's what they thought. Now, God is not as limited in time space as we are. But the idea is very sound. They were looking forward to that resurrection of the dead because the dead in Christ, those who have died with Jesus, will rise first. They will ascend into heaven. And then those who are still alive, the coming of the Lord will ascend with them. But there is an ascension of going up to Jesus. Now after the ascension, we have assurance. Now, there's a lot of things in our life that we've known someone who has assured us of something only to have it blow up in their face. I mean, there's, there's assurance of things. You put flooring in your house, it gives you a 25-year guarantee. Or if you have an assurance that this, will, uh, this siding will last you or this roof will last you so and so, so long, but we realize that the assurance really, they can't really guarantee it, right? Not, not everyone can guarantee everything that they say. 
People make promises all the time. But see, this is an assurance and a promise that will be kept. And it is guaranteed by the blood, and re- blood of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And this is the assurance that I love. And it's in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will, what is that word there? Always be with the Lord. Be with the Lord. We will always be with God. That's an assurance. That's a promise. You will be with God forever and ever. Never again will you be separated from Him. Never will you ever experience boredom ever again. Boredom doesn't exist in heaven. Never will there be impatience. Never will there be the, the, the sicknesses that have besieged our, our earthly bodies. There will be no more suffering, no more tears. That you will be forever with Jesus, praising Him forever and ever. And you'll never get bored. It's a glorious experience over and over and over again. I mean, we get bored easy on this side of eternity, on this side of the, the door, as C.S. Lewis said. We get bored I mean, even the Israelites, when they experienced the manna from heaven, and they were having uh, the, 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 you know, the, the different animals, that they or not, the birds, the quail that they were eating, they were getting tired of it. They were eating it all the time. But see, with heaven, it's inexhaustible. There's never boredom. You'll never get tired of it. There will always be a variety. There will always be this, this joy that will be rapturous to each one of us. We have an assurance that we will be with God forever and ever. It will be wonderful for those who have trusted in Jesus to see all of the faces of those who died in Christ. What a reunion that will be. But for those who did not submit to him, who did not surrender their life, this passage is a warning for the unprepared. A warning for the unprepared. Notice verse 2 where he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's in 1 Thessalonians 5.2. Now, what does it mean that he will come like a thief in the night? It means that Jesus' coming will be surprising. It will be surprising. See, we have these people that are getting ready all the time. You need to be ready. You need to be ready. We're always to be ready. But these are people that, again, you're not supposed to be building the bunkers and, and the basements and getting up all these food supplies. That's not what you're supposed to be doing because the Scripture here says that it's going to come at a time you do not expect. So it's not the time that you're going to be ready for it. Just like we had, again, we referenced last week with Harold Camping when he said it would be May 21st, people ready all day long. They're trying to be prepared for that day. No, he's saying it's going to come at a day you do not expect. Like a thief in the night, that's when the day of the Lord's going to come. At a time you do not expect, it will be a surprise. And notice what he says in verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security. See, there will be those who are living in a time of peace but because they have everything they want, at peace with others in the world and are secure in their own comforts. People are con- peace and safety in their own sin. But it's a facade. Jesus will come when we least expect him. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 through 44, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So, we, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. 
Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Do not expect. It will be surprising. Life seems to go on as usual. People will be having a good time, partying, living it up. There'll be weddings, people getting drunk, going to bars, just having this, enjoying all the sinful life. Couples will be living together, others will be sleeping together, no big deal, no one cares. Then Jesus will show up. You know, one of the things I admire about the theologian Jonathan Edwards was he said he wanted to live his life in such a way that if Jesus would come back at any moment in time, he would be ready. He wouldn't have any sin that he was holding on to, something that he was keeping secret or any type of practice. But see, there are those that are presuming upon the grace of God, thinking it's not that big a deal. We can go on and do whatever we want, and God doesn't care. God cares. cares a lot. Because he gave his son to show how much he cares. His coming will be surprising, but it will also be sudden. Sudden. Quick, as we read in verse 3, in 1 Thessalonians 5, while people are, say, people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. There will be no chance to prepare for it, no chance to make it right. It will be done. There are so many who think that they can make their way right with God at the last minute, but that's not how it works. God is patient and long-suffering, but he also gives a window of opportunity, and we cannot take that for granted. You will not have any time to prepare. You may think you can put off God now, but you can't. He knows your heart. If you continue to choose to live on your own apart from Him, you will be horrified when He comes suddenly. And destruction comes, with on, uh, comes without any means of protecting, running, or hiding yourself from what is next, and it will be horrific. Nothing that has ever been seen on the face of the earth. See, I think back to the tsunami of 2004. Remember that? It was in the news. It was just devastating. When some 230 to 280,000 people were dead, with many, many more missing. You could see footage. There are people that have footages. Many of them were were on vacation, enjoying the good time, hanging out at the beach. They see the waves. Some had been on the decks of their home, and others people weren't. They saw the water coming, and they couldn't get away in time. And even then, they had the, the, the tide that ripped them right back out. Many people died. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people died that day. And I couldn't believe how horrid it really was. See, the, couple, the, the second coming will be a surprise. People will be going on in their lives, and it will be sudden. We'll also be sure. Sure. See, when labor pains start, they keep intensifying until the baby arrives. See, the, couple, the second coming is sure. It is fixed. God has fixed the day. It won't be changed. There will be no rescheduling. It is sure. More sure than the days or seasons or the sun in the sky, it is fixed. It will be sure. And lastly, it will be severe. It will be severe for those who do not truly know who Jesus is. See, this time will be the time of God's wrath. In verse 9, we learn that God is not destined. All who have put their faith in Christ alone for salvation will not see wrath, but upon everyone else there will be wrath. It will be the day when God pours out his wrath that has been stored up for those who continue to provoke God because of their sin, as Romans 2, 5, and 8 says. It will be an awful day. People will beg to die rather than face God, as Revelation 6 says. They will attempt to hide but cannot. 
They will receive the full payback for every sin they had ever done. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, and God will make sure every man reaps what is the, and paid the wages for all the sins that he has ever done. And for those who refuse to receive and live by Christ's life payment for sin, there remains a debt to pay that all men and women who don't have Jesus are forced to pay for eternity, continually tormented and tortured by the righteous wrath of God. It will be severe. Now I think back at the story of Pompeii. Everybody familiar with Pompeii? Pompeii. Uh, and it, was ha- it happened on August 24th, 79 AD, when Mount Vesuvius erupted. And it looked like a pine tree in the sky, according to historians. Who was, one historian was 13 miles away and could see it clearly. It was spewing noxious flames, ash, smoke, mud, stones, and flames 20 miles into the air. 20 miles into the air. By 1 p.m., just an hour later, ash blocked out the sun, and the people tried to clear heavy ash from rooftops as it fell so fast, about six inches an hour. And shortly after midnight, a wall of volcanic debris of pumice pumice stone, ash, and gases traveling about 200 to 290 miles per hour in what is commonly known as a pyroclastic surge descended down Vesuvius, engulfing the town of Herculaneum about 1 a.m., instantaneously obliterating the town as the citizens fled from Pompeii. Most victims died instantly at the superheated air, which was 750 degrees Fahrenheit. It burned their lungs and contracted their muscles in a fraction of a second, just like that. It's awful. Leaving their bodies in a semi-curled position to be quickly buried in ash and thus preserved in detail for hundreds of years. About 6.30 a.m., a second surge hit Pompeii, killing all who were left instantaneously, burying them under 75 feet of ash. Now, there were some who escaped but they were saw, because they saw the signs. As soon as it, the, the, and there were signs in the days become that they escaped from it. They knew something was happening. They didn't know exactly what, but they escaped. Now, for those who tried to flee their fate after everything had happened, they couldn't get away. It was instant death. I mean, some people had hit him so instantaneously that they froze right where they were at. They couldn't get away. See, I think of God's wrath, and it's going to be even worse than that. And that's awful. We don't realize that God, we think of God as a friend and the Lord, but we don't realize that he's also the coming king. He's the Lord of glory. He's the conquering king. And he is the wrathful God. He's the the loving God, but he's also the wrathful God. He's the God of mercy and peace and righteousness, but he's also the God who will judge sin in all of its awfulness. We can't think to presume upon the very grace of God of God. It will be severe for those who have rejected Jesus, and it should cause each one of us to hurt for our loved ones who do not know him. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, has written this to encourage by giving us a wonderful hope that we who have trusted in Christ will not experience such wrath. It's a warning for the unprepared, but it's also showing us, he's showing us a way to live. A way to live. That's the third point I want you to write down. He's giving us a way to live in the here and now. Look at verse 4. But you are not in darkness. Meaning you're not, you're not living in darkness. It's a metaphor of being an unbelief that you've been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. You've, you are participants now of the grace of God. You have been saved, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You shouldn't be surprised. 
you know what's coming. For you all, you are all children of light, children of the day. Again, a metaphor that is, he is using here to, dis, to show us that we are children of God. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. So here it's not a sleep of death. It is a sleep of being unaware, unawakened, part of the darkness as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So what is Paul showing us here? If we are to be awake, to be ready. To be awake and prepared means to be disciplined. You need to be disciplined, alert. To be alert, you have to be aware of what's going on. You have to discipline yourself and focus your senses in order to be aware and alert. It means to stay awake and be sober. It requires all of our faculties I mean, have you ever been driving and started to fall asleep at the wheel? It takes discipline to stay awake and control of oneself. It takes, I don't want to say practice, but you have to know your body and know what you can handle. At times you have to just pull over and find a place to sleep. For, for the Christian, it takes discipline. And I, I recommend, I mean, how do we have this discipline? How can we teach ourselves this type of discipline? Well, there's several ways. It means training ourselves for the sake of godliness. And it means, here, I'm going to give you a few of them right now. And it's pretty easy, and I think we all know this. It means reading the Bible. You have to learn how to read the Bible, learn how to read the Old Testament, read the New Testament, learning how to apply to our lives. It also means learning how to pray, how to pray. And I'm, ta- I'm not talking about drive-through prayers. We do have times where we have drive-through prayers, but you can't live off drive-through prayers, meaning that you have to have a focused time where you're on your face before God and having conversion, a conversation with Him who loves you the most. It also means witnessing, sharing your faith. Sometimes it means solitude, turning off your phone and all the other distractions around you. Fasting is a part of that, by the way. We've been talking about fasting during the Lenten season, and I I hope and pray that many of you are continuing on in your your fast. I know some of you, it's been too hard and you've given up. And and this is not a law thing. This is a volunteer thing. So I don't want you to feel overwhelming guilt for that. I want you to find joy in that and and joy in, in doing it. But see, fasting is meant to help train us to be godly. See, Paul talks about this. This is that we discipline our bodies in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. See, what he's saying there, and it's interesting, he makes a very interesting connection, food and sexuality. And he's saying that if you can learn to resist food, you can also learn to resist sexual urges. And he's saying because, and Paul says this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, Do you not know that in a race that all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, in, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete ex- exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I train it. And keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's saying that by fasting, I've learned that the spoiled child within me that wants to be uh, just totally fed all the time, I have to learn to quiet that child and discipline myself. That we have to learn to do that as Christians. We are in a society where you can indulge yourself all the time. You can buy whatever you want if you have the money. You can eat whatever you want most of the time. And you can do it whenever you want. We have to learn to tell our bodies that we are not subject to the flesh. 
That's a discipline of ourselves. And that, can, that transfers to other areas. It's not the sole thing that we can do, but it's one of the things that we can do. That's why we encourage people to fast, to show our bodies, this flesh that we, we live in, that we do not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, because we're not to be mastered by anything. That's why he says, going back to the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything, including my physical appetite. Because we are spiritual creatures. We have to put our flesh in place. And that transfers to other areas of our life. And we can be disciplined. Shows us how to live. As Christians, we're not to be engaging and enslaved to our passions. Because the Spirit of God is within us. We can learn to say no to those things. Fasting is one means by which we can train our bodies and ourselves to do that. Now, not only are we required to be disciplined, and I'm going to go through this rather quickly because we're out of time. It requires us being dignified. Dignified. Being dignified means conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of respect, which means not getting drunk, making fools of ourselves. We don't need, we don't need to take our calling with a degree of sobriety and seriousness. I mean, we do. Excuse me. We need to take our calling with a degree of sobriety and seriousness. I'm not saying that we don't laugh and have a good time. And enjoy ourselves. We should be known by our joy. But we also need to be, means we need to be conducting ourselves in a manner that is worthy of Christ. Which means, what are, shows are you watching? What websites are you going to? Are you getting drunk? Are you doing drugs? Are you looking at porn? Are you, how are you spending your money? What are you doing for a hobby? Is it something that is truly worthy of the name of Christ? Now, we can also see that we are also to be dressed. Dressed. And he says here, since we belong to the day, in verse 8, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet of hope of salvation. What did, I, I told you before, what are Paul's themes throughout the epistles? Faith, hope, and love. And there it is again. Breastplate of faith. You have, he continues on. Breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's faith, hope, and love. Clothe yourself with faith, hope, and love. Grow yourself in your faith, your hope, and your love. Now, we also must remember in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For we who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. There again, a metaphor back to being alive or dead. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. He's showing what we have been destined for, because we have been destined for something amazing. We, need, we are destined for something amazing. Something out of this world. See, if you have Jesus, then you are destined for something incredible. This message should be encouraging to you. It should encourage us all to get our hearts ready. For some, that means receiving Him as Lord and Savior of your life. For, other, for others, it means taking the next step and getting baptized. For others, it might mean joining the church or getting involved in a small group or serving or being generous. We need to be, make sure that all of our lives are exposed to the light and presence of Christ. If we're to be ready, it's not just one part of our life, it's the entirety of our lives. So that we are all living in complete obedience to Him. And when we do that, we'll be ready for Him and we don't have to worry about hiding or making excuses. But we'll welcome Him with open hearts because we will be with Him forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this day. And Lord, I thank You for everyone here today. Lord, I pray that You might enrich, encourage each one of us. Lord, that we are people of hope above all things, and that hope should bring us joy and peace. And Lord, may it also cause us to be reminded as we have gone through this passage today that there are many today that are grieving without hope or going on ignorantly without realizing what it is that is coming. 
Lord, may we, with love and wisdom, know how to speak to the, the truth of who you are and testify to your greatness, encouraging them, admonishing them, and warning them about what is to come. And Lord, may we show them, Jesus, above all things, that they too might share in the joy that we have and in the joy of knowing you. So Lord, please glorify your name within us and use us. In Jesus' name, amen.